Hi, how are you? Can you hear me? Uh, to unmute is there. You go. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Perfect. Great. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Thank you. So let me put up the slide link and the paper I added in the chat. Can you see the slides? It should be above our um, icons. There should be. I see them. Yeah, great. Perfect. Yeah. So um, how so everyone will do what we're doing right now. So click on the link, go to link and then the slides pop up. So um, it's really helpful that you refer when you switch slides <clears throat> after some time, maybe in between mention a slide number because it's easy to get lost like after a while. Okay. Um, and yeah, as I said, I posted the paper link in the chat so people can access that too. And then um, when people ask questions, usually either they raise their hand and I'll bring them up. You don't have to worry about it. And then, or they post them in the chat or write me a message and then I'll read them out to you, so. Sounds good. Yeah, I'll try to keep an eye on the chat and see if um, if anybody has like clarification questions or something as we go along. But yeah, hopefully, um, sorry, it's hopefully it's not too late. I know um, I want to make sure I could get back from work in time to, uh, to do this. So I'd, Hopefully, hopefully, people on the East Coast are um, still up and awake at 10 p.m. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it will be fine. And we have a lot of people also on the West Coast and then also in Asia. And for them, it's actually a good time. Oh, okay. So, That's good. Yeah, so Frank will join us from Asia. And then, yeah, um, they're really, it. there's never a perfect time anyway. So that's why we record these events, because... Yeah, as I said, there would never be a time that works for everyone, so. That makes sense, yeah. <laughs> I don't even worry about it anymore. It's like, <laughs> I'll just record. And then if people have questions that they want me to ask, they can send them to me. So I will ask it for them if they can't make it. So, yeah. And, oh, yeah. So we'll start on top of the hour and then um, I'll usually do a very short introduction and then the rest kind of in the interview format, if that's okay with you. Um, so we'll ask something like, how did you discover you want to do research um, or, you know, do this kind of work? Uh, if that's okay with you, we can do a traditional one, but we kind of feel like it's kind of more interesting because then you can just highlight whatever you want to tell us. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, I'm. I'm happy with whatever format. Um, uh, yeah. So, so what you're saying is, we'll just do a, a. The whole thing will basically be a question and answer. Yeah, I'll 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 say shortly where you're working and so on, and um, yeah, and then the rest we'll we'll do through a short interview, and then it's kind of time for your research. Um, and then in the end, we'll do a Q&A about the research. Itself. Oh, I see. Okay. So the so I'll still be giving like kind of a, yeah. some sort of a, a talk, but that will be in the middle. Yeah, exactly. I see. Okay. That sounds good. Perfect. And meet Frank. Hi, Frank. How are you? I haven't talked with you in a while. Oh, hey. Uh, hi, Katerina. Hi, uh, 
Jeff. Yeah, it's been a while, and uh, really looking forward to this uh, discussion. And uh, I'm doing well. And uh, I'm a, by the way, an engineer you know, working with uh, uh, plastic materials, and uh, had a similar uh, usage of you know SEM, but uh, not as a, a frontier research as uh, you know, the batteries. Some cool stuff. Thank you. Great. Yeah, so I'm sharing on Twitter that we're about to start and then we'll share it on other platforms in the meantime. So we have five minutes to relax. Sounds good. How's, how's the weather where you are? It's kind of crazy this winter. Yeah, it's been um, much more rainy than the previous winters. Um, California had a drought for a long time, and I think this winter is more than breaking the drought. It's actually um, this this uh, weekend actually is supposed to be another huge um, rainstorm, basically. So hopefully there's not too much flooding. Yeah, I mean... It's so weird, like in, in France, there's a huge winter drought that was never experienced before, and it snowed in California, and I don't know. Yeah, I guess snowing in California, I guess it occurs um, maybe once every 50 years or something, because the last time it occurred was in the 1980s, I think. Um, so it does happen sometimes, but just not very frequently, and it doesn't... Um, the snow, if you've seen snow, of course, it's only up in the mountains, so um, not as much at the sea level where most people live. Okay, okay, I see. I saw these pictures on Twitter, I think, with people having walls around them of snow, like, you know, digging, like, I don't know if you saw that, but... <laughs> yeah, that was up in, um, in the, like, the Lake Tahoe area in, in the Sierra Nevada mountains. So they are getting record level snowfall up in the up in those mountains, and so it, it's actually um, if if you can get there, if the roads are open, I've heard it's fantastic skiing weather for this this winter. Yeah, here in New York is nothing like mm -hmm. this winter. It's like there was almost no snow. It's the second year that there's really not much snow that i mean all the way upstate there for sure was in between but yeah that's not too much my kids are very disappointed yeah as i said i think i used to love new york kind of because it had like a real winter and then then also real summer where i grew up in porto and then germany like I'm from Portugal, but then I grew up in Germany most of the time. There was never real winter, but also not a very hot uh, summer. You know, it was mostly rainy and in between. <laughs> so I really preferred that. But now it's rainy here too. It was mostly just rain. So anyhow, let's see. Yeah, I think it's actually been about as cold in California this winter as it has been in New York from what I've heard. Yeah, and in Florida, it's been so hot. I mean, as long as I, as far as I saw, it was really, really hot. I don't know if mm. that's normal, so hot, but I don't know, like 30 Celsius 
I'm sorry, I still calculate them. <laughs> Anyways. Um, well, let's see. For now, we are just complaining out of luxury, right? Like <laughs> one day it won't be, we'll be for running for our lives probably from floods and stuff. So let's enjoy. <laughs> yeah, we are almost about to start, everyone. Um, I know people will still be coming in. Uh, we will start in a minute with introductions and then um, we'll go from there. And um, yeah, welcome everyone to Science Society. And um, of course, oh, and the, the presentation is pinned on top of the room. And then we have additionally the a free access link to the paper that is going to be discussed here today. Um, so um, yeah, feel free to, to access both. And um, yeah, and let me start with introducing our guest speaker here today, um, Dr. Jeff Mekunohi. I hope I said that right. <laughs> it's it's actually Jeff, just like uh, J E F F. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm so sorry. No problem. No problem. <laughs> I should have asked. We had like ten minutes. <laughs> um, he did his. Um, Education at Stanford University, his doctor, uh, his PhD in material science, um, and uh, with the advisor William uh, Chue. I hope I said that one right. Probably not. <laughs> and um, yeah, before that, he um, did his. Um, his degree at the University of Wisconsin Madison and engineering and physics and he uh, then um, after doing his PhD he um, actually started then working where he is currently at Sela Nanotechnologies um, I will post a website um, also for the company in the chat in a minute and um, yeah it's such an honor to have you here and to get to know you a little bit uh, better even. Uh, we would like to know how did you discover like a passion or like an interest in this field of research and engineering? Was it something you always wanted to do or that, you know, did you go have a class or interesting, you know, teacher that that or maybe a family member that kind of showed you the way to to this type of career yeah thanks for the introduction i guess um i'm definitely one of these people who just kind of always wanted to be in the sciences um when i was a kid i was constantly taking things apart and trying to figure out how they worked um and so i was just constantly kind of obsessed with how things worked um, so that definitely drove me to want to study sciences and engineering. Um, I loved building things as a kid, so that was also kind of the engineering part. Um, I think maybe more specifically, though, I got interested, I think, in um, energy topics um, kind of more gradually throughout my like high school days, middle school, college days. Um, and kind of learning more and more about the, the, the really big demand for new energy technologies um, for environmental and other reasons. 
Um, and I also just remembering hearing as a kid that like a, a typical car engine only gets like 25% efficiency uh, converting the fuel energy to actual useful stuff. And I, I kind of thought that, oh, that was that sounds horrible. Um, so I, I kind of also been uh, interested in energy technologies after kind of hearing how there's so many opportunities to to improve them and, and kind of like a lot of societal good that can be done, I think, by um, making new basically energy generation storage technologies. So um, I got very lucky throughout my um, college days to be involved with a number of research projects um, that were just kind of related to a lot of different energy generation and storage technologies. Um, and so then as I uh, got into grad school, I more specifically wanted to focus on, on electrochemistry um, because electrochemistry, I think, is really kind of a critical area of um, science that kind of enables a lot of energy technologies like batteries and fuel cells are very similar devices in some ways. Um, they're all based on electrochemistry. Um, and increasingly, there'll be probably other processes in um, society that are driven electrochemically. Um, so I thought that was a really great field to study. So that led me in grad school to really focus on electrochemical um, sciences, um, which um, batteries was also one of my main interests throughout grad school as well. Um, so it, it's all worked out very surprisingly smoothly, actually. Um, I've been extremely fortunate in the, the path that I've taken to get here. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. And um, that it's, you know, passion driven and, and interest driven and that you had the opportunities to follow this path. Um, uh, that's, uh, I, I feel like listening to these stories here uh, when I interview speakers always makes me very hopeful for the future <laughs> because you know you could just use your bright mind to I don't know work on Wall Street or <laughs> you know doing other things so um, yeah and then um, how did you get to work in the company you're now and on this specific project um, you know was it something that kind of led from your PhD there or um, uh, yeah the, how did this come about is it easy to get like funding for this type of work for a company um, yeah that'd be interesting to learn thank you yeah let me maybe back up a little bit I think if you're referring to the the paper which was just published um, that work was done entirely when I was a PhD student. So that work is, and what we'll be talking about today is, is all related to my, my PhD work um, while I was at Stanford. Um, the, uh, the job that I'm currently working on is also related to batteries. It's a, it's a battery materials company, um, but it's not anything related to what I'll be uh, talking about today or related to the paper. Um, but I was able to get that job basically through a connection in my grad school lab. Uh, one of my, uh, one of my classmates, um, lab mates, he had a connection with someone who had just started working there actually as a, a manager and wanting to, um, build up a team of people to work on, uh, kind of new product ideas at, Sela uh, nanotechnologies, and so I thought that was a pretty uh, unique opportunity. So I uh, ended up joining that company um, to work on kind of new products for them to develop. So that's the hopefully the um, 
the short answer for that that question. But um, yeah, there okay. there are there are two different projects. So the 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 paper that just was published was all funded through a combination of government and private um, uh, grants, and uh, yeah. Well, thank you for uh, clarifying that, and it's for sure also interesting to learn about what you're doing today. But I know I I consult consult for companies. It's not something you can usually talk about a lot. So, um, yeah, so we are really curious now to hear about this work because batteries are becoming more and more important in our lives. So. Uh, so everyone, again, if you just joined, the presentation is pinned on top of the room and uh, the paper link is in the chat. Feel free to access it and the stage is yours. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much. Um, kind of fun to do a Q&A at the, at the beginning before the talk. I, I, I kind of like that format. Um, Okay, so yeah, as um, is it is it Kat Katrina? Is that how you say? Yeah, it's right. Katarina, but yeah, Katarina. Ka Katarina. Okay, <laughs> makes sense. Um, as Katarina said, uh, the presentation that I put together is 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 at the top, um, and if you open it up, you'll be able to see a, a bunch of different um, slides essentially, and on the first slide, I put um, kind of just a very very crude. Uh, picture of a, a battery. Um, we're, luckily, um, this is not something I have to explain too much because we're we're basically all familiar with batteries in our day-to-day -day life. Um, but I think what what is kind of not as obvious is that um, batteries are actually a really complicated um, a complicated device, and it's kind of uh, deceptive because if you look at a battery on the outside, it just looks like a kind of a can, um, and you don't get to see any of the the really interesting things happening on the inside because it's all sealed up. Um, but if you were to open up a battery, there's three quintessential parts um, that all batteries have. One is the, um, the cathode or the positive electrode. Um, positive is the like the plus side of the battery. Um, the more technical term is positive electrode, but in the lithium ion battery industry and other places, people often call the positive electrode the cathode. Um, so you'll hear them used often, sometimes interchangeably. Um, there's the electrolyte, which is in the middle, and the negative electrode on the anode. And so the the thing to keep in mind with, with all batteries is that the, the cathode and the anode, or the negative and positive electrodes, they're the things that actually store the energy in the, in the battery. And the electrolyte in the middle is actually kind of like a shuttle for um, typically ions to move uh, from one electrode to the other. And so it's actually kind of funny. Um, I don't know if any of you have made the kind of lemon battery or potato battery sometimes in your like high school or middle school science class. Um, but the funny thing about that is that we, you typically stick, you know, two pieces of, of metal in the, in the lemon or something. And the funny thing about it is that the lemon actually is not the thing that's really storing the energy in some ways. The most of the energy is really coming from the metals and the reaction between the metals and essentially the water in the um, in the lemon. And so it's kind of funny that the um, uh, you know you you think of a lemon battery as being powered by lemons, but actually the lemon is is the electrolyte in the middle. So that's kind of it's kind of a fun thing to uh, to learn once you start to learn about batteries. Um, if you look at the second slide, this is a, a picture on the on the right, 
which is kind of a, a more realistic picture of the three parts of a battery. And this is actually a picture of a lithium ion battery that you're probably actually using right now to, um, to listen to this conversation on your phone. And so uh, similar to any other battery though, there are three main parts, the anode, the cathode, and the separator, or the, uh, the electrolyte, I should say. And in this particular picture, the electrolyte is actually contained in the separator. So um, you can see that it's, it looks like kind of a bunch of pebble, pebbles or a bunch of rocks, and that's actually um, not too far off. So the cathode in most lithium ion batteries actually is made of, um, is made of a, what we would call an oxide, but it's actually very similar kind of in composition to, to actual rocks. Rocks are made of like silicon oxide, aluminum oxide, um, quartz is silicon oxide, and um, cathode materials that are typically used in lithium ion batteries are made of things like cobalt oxide or nickel oxide. So it's it's actually kind of looks like a, a big pile of rocks, um, and it's these are very these are actually very very small particles. Um, there's a scale bar at the bottom right of, of the picture, and it's it says 50 micrometers, and so the 50 micrometers is like probably about, um, it's, it's very much like the thickness of a piece of paper or something. So these things are actually very small. And um, in terms of lithium ion batteries, that's kind of the, the big secret in, of why they work is because all these little particles are super small. So they actually have a very high surface area and um, the chemical reaction, what that goes inside the battery to generate the energy um, goes faster if there's more surface area. So if there's a lot more surface area, you can get more energy out of out of the battery um, compared to if the these little particles were just one big uh, piece of stuff. So um, in in this particular picture on slide two, if you kind of look, there's a in the very middle there's a sep it's called the separator, and on either side of it is the cathode and the anode. And for a lithium ion battery, um, what actually happens when you charge and discharge it is that there are lithium ions that move from the anode to the cathode during discharge. And when you charge the battery, you move the lithium ions back from the cathode back to the anode. And when you move the ions, the whole battery actually remains um, what we would call charge neutral. So the, the lithium ions are positively charged and when you move the lithium ions back and forth between the cathode or the anode, on the external part of the battery, the, the part that you connect with wires or other things, then electrons will actually move uh, throughout the what we call the external circuit from one side to the other. So uh, another funny kind of misnomer about batteries is, is we actually say we're charging them up. But um, if you think about that, when you move a positively charged lithium and you move a negatively charged electron, actually what you're really doing is you're moving a neutrally charged lithium atom from the anode to the cathode. So the actual battery, it never changes the amount of charge that it's storing. The way to really think about a, a lithium ion battery is you're actually moving uh, things from one place to another. It's very similar to like a hydroelectric dam. You can actually store energy in a hydroelectric dam by pumping water up the hill and then uh, with a with a pump or a, uh, essentially a turbine, and then when you if you let the water flow back down the hill, you capture the energy again that you can use to drive um, other machinery that you want. So it's very similar for lithium ion battery. You're actually moving instead of water up and down a hill, you're moving lithium atoms from uh, the cathode to the anode to charge, and from the anode back to the cathode to discharge. So 
batteries, I think, have a, a lot of misnomers. And it, they're like I said, they're kind of a mysterious device. So I'm always happy to kind of um, explain the, the details about how they work. And we can, we can certainly talk about this more later. Um, one of the things that's you kind of um, common in lithium ion batteries and, and actually common to most batteries that you use, whether it's the like lead acid battery in your car or the, the AA battery that's used um, for small other devices, is that the electrolyte is typically liquid. Um, and that's, that's for good reason. The liquid electrolyte is really good at moving ions around. You can think like an electrolyte is, um, you often say like a, the Gatorade electrolytes or something, but electrolyte is basically any liquid, typically a liquid that is, um, has salt dissolved in it. And um, you can imagine when you dissolve the salt in the water um, for, to make like <clears throat> um, a soda or cooking or something, then uh, the, the salt, uh, ions actually do get kind of totally dissolved in that um, in that liquid and they can move around very quickly. Um, so that's really important for a battery because you really want to make sure that the, 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 the ions that are moving through the battery can actually uh, do that very quickly. The faster things move in a battery, typically the better. Um, so it, in this uh, on slide two, the, the place where it's indicating the separator, which is that little kind of gray band in the middle, that's kind of a actually like a porous material that holds uh, all the electrolytes. And the electrolyte is also kind of distributed throughout all the little spaces in between all these little particles on the anode and the cathode. So the whole thing is kind of uh, immersed, like kind of soaked in electrolyte. Um, and so that electrolyte allows for the lithium ions to move back and forth between the two sides of the battery. Um, but if you go to slide three, the work that I have just published and did for my grad school uh, work all, focused on a, a really um, novel kinds of materials that are called solid state electrolytes. Um, and this leads to the idea of a solid state battery. But the question is like, what is, what is a solid state battery? Like what is a solid electrolyte? And the, the big difference is that in a liquid electrolyte, like, like I was saying, you typically have um, a salt that's dissolved in a liquid, and that allows the, 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 um, the ions to move around very quickly. Um, and so on the left is kind of a picture, uh, like at the atomic scale of just like what it might look like when you have uh, the salts that are dissolved in the liquid. You have positively charged ions, negatively charged ions, and they're all kind of floating around all over the place. Um, on the right, though, you have a picture of what I would call a solid state electrolyte. And a solid state electrolyte is basically just kind of a, a what we would call a ionic solid. So like sodium chloride itself is, is uh, one of these kinds of um, materials, table salt. Um, and so um, typically in most solids, uh, there are um, the atoms in the solid are very strongly bound. They can't move at all. But in a very specific class of these materials, solid state electrolytes, they've been basically meticulously designed or discovered to have special like properties so that the lithium or any other kind of ion can actually kind of hop around between what are called vacancies. So I put kind of in the middle of this picture on the right on slide three, there's kind of a hole. And so if you, um, if you design a material uh, in a very particular way, the 
in this case, like the positively charged A ion can actually kind of bounce around and kind of move between these different uh, what we call vacancies to hop between these different places on what are called the the crystal lattice or the the unit cell, and then it can uh, hop along and it, it will actually behave just like a a liquid electrolyte. Typically, though, um, for almost all cases, though, the the positively charged ions moving around in the solid don't move as quickly as they do in the liquid. So that's kind of one drawback. Um, so, so I guess why are people interested in using this solid state thing instead of using a, a liquid, which is typically used in a lithium ion battery? And if you go to slide four, um, the it kind of depicts the motivation for this. So on, on the top of slide four. You can see there's kind of a schematic of a battery, very similar to uh, the one I was showing before. Um, on the on the right hand side, there is showing the uh, what is kind of the more typical battery, and then on the um, on the on the left is kind of a, kind of an idea for a next generation battery, which people call a a lithium metal battery, um, or in this case, it's a lithium metal solid state battery. And so the idea with a lithium metal battery is that um, if you look at the picture on the right, um, the on this particular picture, the anode is on the left side of, 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 the, of the drawing, and you can see the separator in the middle, and the cathode is on the right. Um, on the left-hand side of the battery on the anode, for most lithium-ion batteries, this is a material called graphite, which is the same material as in pencils. And um, that material on the left, the graphite kind of uh, houses the lithium-ions. Lithium-ions actually go inside of the graphite and it holds them. And so that way um, it holds them during the, the chemical reaction and kind of provides a, a structure for them so that they have somewhere to go. Um, but the unfortunate part of that structure is actually takes up a lot of extra space and a lot of extra weight. So actually um, the kind of quote unquote holy grail or the ultimate like in terms of amount of energy per unit volume that you could pack into a battery um, is if you didn't have any of the graphite there and you just had pure lithium. And if you remember from chemistry class, uh, lithium in its elemental form without any oxygen or other stuff around is, is a metal. So um, this is why it's called a lithium metal battery because it's kind of the best case you can do by getting rid of all this extra graphite. And um, I can, I'll show you a little bit later, but the solid state electrolyte is really important because the solid state uh, electrolytes are oftentimes more stable uh, chemically than the typical liquids that are used in, in, in batteries. So the idea is that if you replace the liquid electrolyte with this new solid state thing, you can actually use lithium metal that would have been too reactive um, for the typical liquid electrolytes before. So, um, so that's kind of the, uh, the premise of, and the motivation for the research that I was doing in my, in my graduate school work. So the, the work I was doing was trying to solve this, um, this particular problem, problem called a dendrite problem. And on, you can see pictures of this in action on slide five. And on slide five, there's a picture on the left side, and I circled it in a yellow box that shows what happens when you try to essentially charge the battery that uh, has a lithium metal on the anode side. And what happens is that as you charge the battery, um, the lithium metal 
it's kind of growing and I'll have, I have more pictures of this later. And what tends to happen is for some reason, the lithium metal actually is able to kind of work its way through the solid state electrolytes. And one of the things that people were hoping that solid state electrolytes would help with is, is preventing this particular problem. Um, this problem is kind of famous in the lithium metal battery community world as the dendrite problem, um, because these little kind of whiskery like filaments uh, in the process of charging the battery actually tend to grow from one side to the other. Um, if, if anybody's familiar, familiar with electroplating, um, this is very similar to electroplating, where you can get these weird metal structures that grow because you're doing the same thing when you're trying to charge the lithium metal battery. Um, and so you can see in this picture, the kind of transparent part is actually the solid state electrolyte. And it's an oxide. It's, it's actually kind of a ceramic material, very similar to like plates or cups that you have uh, sitting around your house. It's like a white, whitish, clearish uh, uh, material. And so then when you, like I said, when you go to charge the battery, you get these like filament-like structures that go through. And um, really quickly, there's a lot of um, discussion in the scientific literature about this topic. And so this, this phenomenon is very difficult to, to explore. And there's a lot of, the, the really big question is like, why do these uh, silvery, like lithium metal bits tend to grow through this very hard, very brittle, or very hard and very stiff ceramic. Um, and so people basically have kind of speculated um, that this is due to mechanical methods. On the, so on the right-hand side of slide five, on the kind of top right corner, there's a picture that shows a like a, um, a a schematic of what people think is going on here, where lithium, as you're electrochemically plating it or charging the battery, you're depositing more lithium on one side of the battery. And the idea is that, well, if the lithium gets inside of like a tiny pre-existing crack in the material that are microscopic, then you that are hard to see, then maybe the lithium will actually build up pressure and actually crack the ceramic. And so that's kind of the leading hypothesis for why this kind of lithium metal problem happens. And if you go to slide six, there are definitely some, I would say, pretty good evidence that that is happening. Um, this particular uh, uh, picture here is coming from a paper out of uh, the Jürgen Janik group over in Germany. And they have actually were the first people to use kind of the techniques that that I also utilized and we utilized to do the particular study that just got published. Um, and you can see that in this picture on slide six, there's this little kind of finger. And in the background is this, uh, the solid state electrolyte material. We, we call it LLZO as an acronym for the, the chemical composition. And you can see that the um, there looks like there's a big crack in it. And that's true. Um, this is actually a video. If you have the chance, you can check this out um, if you go to look up this paper. The videos are actually um, they're actually free. You don't have to um, you don't have to pay for them or anything. So you can actually see that um, if you you have this little finger and the little finger is actually acting as a, a kind of a micro battery. And it's actually allowing you to uh, electrochemically deposit or electroplate lithium starting from this electrolyte. And there's actually another piece of lithium on the other side, which allows you to uh, kind of kind of plays the role of the opposite electrode in, in the battery. Um, so you plate out this lithium on the surface. And at some point, they see these like cracks that form. And that's kind of 
a good indication that there's some sort of like what we would call fracture happening in this um, this uh, ceramic material, but uh, we don't still really have a good idea of like wh why is it cracking in the first place essentially like what's leading to this this cracking phenomenon. Um, so what we set out to do and in slide seven is that we wanted to actually kind of control where these these kind of cracks would begin. So what we kind of hypothesized based on the previous literature was that we should be able to make some like like kind of control exactly where that um, that cracking will start. And so if we can do this repeatedly, then we can actually do this in a very much more like precise and rigorous scientific way where we have a good set of control experiments and we have a good set of test experiments. And then hopefully we can even do some statistics on it, which would be really good. Um, so I'm going pretty quick here because I know that um, we want, I want to have plenty, plenty of time for discussion, but if you go on slide eight, um, this is a the figure first figure from our paper, which shows kind of how we did these experiments. So on, on the uh, upper left part of slide eight, you can see like the schematic where we have, we also are using the same technique as the, the previous groups, where we have our own little finger, and then we are basically touching it to the surface of the solid state electrolyte, which is shown in tan. And then on the other side, there's a, a piece of lithium, which pr basically just provides like a, a, a source of lithium that we can move to do these experiments as a kind of just an easy, simple way to, to make the cell. And then we have a, a voltage source outside of this, this cell, which we apply, and then we make these lithium metals show up at the surface of the solid state electrolyte. And um, the pictures on the bottom are really nice um, colorized pictures that are taken from our, our microscope images. So all of this is actually done in a, in a very high power microscope, which we call a scanning electron microscope. And we use this kind of microscope because it has a much higher resolution than you can see in a, what typically microscopes use as light to see, to see magnified objects. So um, here we're using an electron microscope to get higher resolution. And then we're hopefully trying to explore at like kind of what conditions drive uh, this fracture event. Um, and on the bottom half of slide eight, you can see these nice pictures. We, we put the color in ourselves. We don't get any color out of the, out of the microscope, but just to highlight like the different parts of the process. And you can kind of see the process where as we keep depositing lithium, we actually grow it like kind of these, what we call like whiskers on the surface. And then at some point, um, kind of randomly, actually, we see these like big pieces of um, lithium coming out that you can see in, in uh, the letter E portion of this of this figure. Um, so this is again, the, this is the kind of problem that we're trying to solve, like pictures C and D are looking good. The, we want the lithium to go on top of this material. We don't want it to go inside or kind of uncontrollably in different places. Um, but figure uh, E in this slide is is kind of bad news. This is this is what's leading to that that uh, kind of propagation of lithium filaments. And I forgot to mention if these, if these lithium filaments get from one side to the other, if they completely go through the electrolyte from one side to the other, it actually causes what's called like an internal short circuit. And if you internally short circuit the battery, you actually can't 
charge it or discharge it anymore um, via the external circuit because it's kind of just everything is now connected inside and it's it's kind of bad news everything breaks at, at that point so we're trying to really understand like why is this particular thing happening um, and i have to credit my um, colleague shin we both worked uh, a long time on this project and he actually did um Oh, he was operating the microscope that actually took all these images. So I think he is the, the king of this microscopy technique that we call focused ion beam or FIB milling. Um, so he's he's really uh, very critical for the, this work. And we worked very closely on, on this uh, together. Um, I like to uh, put this in a funny way. So if you look at slide nine, um, you can see, like I was saying, the 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 kind of swirly columnar like thing is what we want to see have happen and that's labeled number one and uh the part that we don't want to have happen is is part number two which is the lithium kind of going off in all different directions totally uncontrollably and actually fracturing the material um as it is is being deposited and i think this is really a great picture because it, it looks like this um the the night before Nightmare Before Christmas uh, movie uh, film cover. So I think this this was a really fun project to do because we got to see all these really fun uh, microscope images of these crazy lithium filaments that are, are going all over the place. Um, and so um, I guess continuing on, the big discovery in our work actually that led us to publish this, on, which I'm showing on slide 10, is that we actually, unlike the previous literature, this was our kind of contribution, is that we were actually able to control uh, how much force we were putting between this, this little what we call microprobe or this metallic finger onto the surface of the sample. And so then what we basically found is that if you, if you apply a really big force to the surface of the sample, you see that the lithium, what we're calling intrusions or dendrites, this fracturing process occurs like almost instantaneously. So something about the application of a high force to this ceramic material causes there to be this lithium growth kind of inside of it or uncontrollably throughout the material. And so this was a really um, big clue to us that there's something about the, um, the basically the mechanics of the material that's leading to this uh, fracture event or lithium intrusion event. Um, and if you look at slide 11, we kind of wanted to dive a little bit deeper and figure out what is the actual, what's the contact force actually doing? So the first thing that we did is we basically took um, some of these pictures from slide 10 on the right-hand side, which is the the high contact force um, condition. And we're, this microscope that we're using is a really amazing piece of equipment, actually. And it actually allows us to, to basically cut out the material. Um, so the, the picture on the left of slide 11 is actually showing us showing how you can actually look at where the little orange box is. And you zoom in really close, and you actually cut and kind of you actually dig a trench essentially. And when you dig the trench, you can look at the cross section. So you're kind of looking at it from the side in the in part B of that picture. And so we're looking for what's going on here. And sure enough, we see there there's this little crack here, but very interestingly, 
this crack was not there um, before the lithium was there. So we we were actually very confused because when we when we basically crashed this probe, this metallic finger into the surface of the material, you would expect to see like some sort of uh, cracking occur, but we actually found that even after we observed this lithium going all over the place, the cracks are actually super, super tiny. And we actually can't even observe any cracks before the lithium is um, deposited. So um, this was actually a very confusing thing to us. So we, again, we like apply a, a contact force through this finger, but we don't really see in, at least we don't see it in the microscope any kind of like damage that's occurring to the material. So um, so what we, we had to do is we actually had to use some other techniques outside of the microscope. Um, this was what a mechanical engineer or mechanics of materials people would call an indentation test. So on the right-hand side, there is this uh, graph on the top right, which basically shows that um, as you apply a higher and higher contact load, um, the the material behaves in a way that's not kind of typical for what you would see if the material was not essentially fracturing or breaking in some way. The dotted lines are what you would typically expect to see if the material was kind of not, um, if it was holding up to the load that you were applying. Um, but the blue curve is what we actually measured in the experiment. And it's actually, it's like, it's less steep, which means that the material is actually not um, sustaining the load. It's kind of like a bridge. If you apply a big enough load to the bridge, eventually the bridge will fall down. And essentially this is kind of happening at a microscopic scale. And it's very hard to measure, except with these very sensitive mechanical devices. So essentially the, um, part C of this picture is telling us that, well, there there probably is something happening in the material that is 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 essentially some sort of damage that's happening, and we suspect, based on kind of hypotheses and our intuition about what's going on, that those are probably these extremely small cracks that even they're so small that even with our super high power microscope, we still can't see them, but they they're likely there, and they're what's inducing this kind of. Uh, lithium growth and fracturing and propagation of uh, of lithium, which is the problem that we're trying to understand. And so, um, the last thing we we showed in this in this paper, which I put on slide twelve, is that once the lithium kind of penetrates this ceramic material and is able to propagate, uh, you can actually control which direction the lithium will tend to grow through the material. If you apply essentially a, like a, what, we, what we're calling in this paper, a, a globally applied stress. So in the, in the previous uh, experiments I've been talking about, all the stresses are applied at a very, very particular location using this, this little metal finger. Um, but you can also just imagine taking the entire sample and just bending it like with, in our case, we use like a screw and you just apply a force and you kind of bend it in a particular way. So that's kind of shown on slide 12 on uh, picture B. And essentially if you globally take the whole sample, the whole electrolyte, the solid state electrolyte and you bend it, then after the lithium is is has begun to propagate through the material, if you in picture C compared to picture A, you can see that most of the the direction of the lithium is actually aligned in one particular way. We have a lot more pictures of this, so um, 
we were relatively confident about it. And so you can see how the um, the alignment of the of the lithium growth is basically influenced by that globally applied force, which is pushing uh, the essentially the crack propagation through the material in a particular way. We're kind of forcing it to go a particular way based on the applied uh, stresses and um, that we apply. So um, that's a very kind of fast and brief summary of the work that we're doing. And the kind of global or overall conclusions of this of this research that we're doing is that um, the people that are trying to implement this material in kind of next generation uh, solid state lithium metal batteries, it, it shows a lot of promise actually in some ways because the material we found is is quite chemically stable as, as people think it should be. And also you can deposit the lithium very fast on the surface of this material. But we also found that the material is highly sensitive to these mechanical defects, which, we've, which we basically um, induce ourselves by contacting this material with this metal probe. So it's actually kind of, it shows that there's, a, there's actually an enormous challenge if people wanted to use this material in this particular way in order to make a lithium metal battery, because the, you basically have to make a material that's either like perfectly free of cracks, or you have to have some other method to prevent the lithium from going inside of these cracks and um, and causing this additional crack propagation and short circuiting of the of the batteries inside. So it's um, it was a really fun project to work on and. It definitely shows, I think, pretty strong um, evidence to support that the mechanics of this material are really important in understanding the short circuiting mechanism. And so, um, yeah, this is a kind of a, I guess, brief summary of the the work that we did and and published recently. And um, I'm happy to, to take as many questions. I, I tried to leave a lot of time for questions because I'm sure um, there'll be a lot of, of questions based on the either the slides that I presented or or just even lithium-ion batteries in general. Um, the company I'm working at now does not do anything regarding solid-state batteries or this particular material. It's working in the kind of traditional lithium-ion batteries with liquid electrolytes. And um, I can also answer kind of any questions about the, the lithium-ion battery industry or all these different things. Um, I'm happy to, to, to discuss any of it if people want to ask questions about it. Well, thank you so much for presenting this really interesting work and um, this amazing images. I, I love the comparison with the nightmare before Christmas. <laughs> it's really true. And um, it's it's really interesting how to how you um, got to um, discover these tiny cracks and um, how they form. So. Um, I guess the main question everyone will have is, do you have, would you have a strategy to kind of uh, prevent these um, in the future? And will it be, you know, pretty straightforward, something we can afford for all kinds of batteries? Or would we just address this in like high, um, you know, like, the environments that need to have like really safe batteries um so yeah what what do you think the strategies will be in the future yeah i think the the obvious strategy i think is to make a material which is very very pristine it's 
doesn't have any defects in it. And this is actually done. Um, so actually the um, semiconductor industry, the people that make the computer chips that go into our phones and all this stuff, they're actually already very, very good at making materials that are essentially defect-free, um, extremely good control over them. Uh, the problem though with that approach is that, like you said, the expense actually starts to go up a lot. And it's sometimes not super clear like how to do that. Um, because unlike a computer chip, um, a battery actually, like you, like I was showing in some of those first pictures, um, it, there's actually a huge amount of area, like the surface area that you have to have, even if you don't take into account those little tiny particles, but kind of like a uh, like a like a sheet of it, like the sheet of the battery electrodes. There's actually enormous amount of that packed into something like an electric vehicle, um, and so trying to make uh, that large of area of material in a, a very, very pristine way is, is a huge challenge. And so um, I think it is not super clear how you would do that. Um, the way that typical lithium-ion batteries get around this problem is they basically add these host structures, right? So I think maybe there might be some kind of hybrid between the um, the traditional lithium-ion battery, which has a host structure, but the host structure takes up a lot of space, um, and this the kind of solid-state lithium metal approach, which is no host structure at all, but the lithium metal, metal tends to cause dendrite. So maybe there's some sort of like hybrid between the two, which would make these um, like more uh, less susceptible to dendrites. Um, so that's kind of my thinking. But there's a there's a lot of people who have uh, done a lot of work on this, and I think there's there's many different kind of strategies that people people try to employ. Yeah. Do you think there will be developed um, a grade like a DIN, you know, for other um, stuff like metrics, grades of requirements? for different types of batteries for different types of things let's say pacemaker battery versus you know a scooter battery or something um that we will have norms for that um i think that would be pretty good yeah know. i think we already have those in a lot of situations um i think like um batteries that go inside mobile phones i think are probably taken with a lot less um scrutiny they're not kind of probably critically evaluated as heavily as materials that go into cars for example um, so i think this already happens in a lot of different industries and i think there there aren't like standards right now which is actually i think a big problem for the industry um, i think they'll be developed over the next however many years but um the there there eventually i think will be standards for what kind of batteries go into what things and and kind of what um, what what their level of um, tolerance for failure is essentially because maybe if the battery in your phone fails it's kind of annoying but sometimes you know if the battery fails in your electric car you could have a fire you could have a car crash it's much more much more critical um, so it's um, I think yeah I think that will be definitely something that happens in the future. Oh yeah, that's interesting and um, you know uh, interesting thing we had. A couple of months or so ago, um, archaeology room here, like guest speakers here, and it was about different type of metal recipes in ancient China, and they already had standards back then, and that gave us like conclusions about the whole 
you know, governmental structure, how well it was, or it was really interesting. So I find it interesting that we are not as advanced as we think sometimes. <laughs> Other things, yeah, like your research is very advanced, but then, you know, we don't have standards. It's interesting. Just in, you know, uh, you Yeah, I might say that the, um, <laughs> I, I would say batteries are very advanced, but I think they're, uh, it's just not very organized in, in some ways. Um, so yeah, I think the, the industry, I think has a lot to do in order to kind of standardize, um, come to conclusions about how to structure the industry. Um, yeah, lots of, there's lots of different organizational level stuff that I think needs to, needs to happen, but I think it'll get there. I'm not, I'm not too worried about that. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Uh, and just, uh, it's also interesting that your paper came out recently. And then, you know, we found recently new uh, lithium um, resources, I think in Norway, and then in Chile, I believe, and in Iran, and so on. So maybe we won't run out as soon as we thought. So, you know, that we won't switch to something else. So, this research um, makes it even more important for the future. And I want to hand it over now to Frank, Denise, and Jake. Welcome to the stage. And uh, yeah, please go ahead and ask your question. Okay. Yeah, thank you. I'll take a first step. And uh, yeah, this uh, and this is really interesting uh, research that, uh, and the, the, the well-explained. And thank you for that. that that's uh, very interesting. I always wanted to learn, you know, get... Uh, more insights, and, and I think the, you, you did a, a, such an excellent job. So I do have a, a few questions, but uh, let me first uh, start with uh, one or two. The on the uh, on the page uh, eleven that you did show us the uh, the the, the uh, picture B, the figure B, it, the crack is uh, say uh, you mark it as thirty nanometer. Is that uh, a uh, what is the confidence level? How, how did you uh, narrow down to this uh, figure? That is it a guess or is actually you, I, I don't think you observe them directly, right? So you you indirectly using the mechanical uh, measurement that you you guessed is uh, that uh, with. Yeah, so I think I didn't do maybe as good a job explaining this as I, I should have. It, it's very, it, it's a little bit confusing to explain. So um, the picture that I, I put in, in, in part B here is actually a, um, it, it, it's kind of the aftermath. It's the, what we would call the post postmortem analysis of after the lithium penetrates the salt electrolyte and causes this orange, what we've colored an orange uh, on part A. Um, after we do that, uh, we, we definitely cause the lithium to penetrate the material. Then after we're done uh, with the experiment, we, we excavate it and we look at it. And this is, this is just what we see in, in figure B. And we've seen this definitely a number of times. And the, the cracks are, the cracks there, we're pretty confident are they're they're the size they are because of the lithium so they're kind of electrochemically driven um what i was talking about before where we can't see the cracks i don't have the the pictures in here but um they're they're buried very deep in in the, the paper and supplemental information in the actual published work but um 
the cracks that I was referring to that we can't see are, are the cracks that are driven by the application of the force that the little microprobe or the little metal finger is applying to the, the ceramic. So we were very surprised that if we don't do any lithium metal um, electrochemistry, we don't, you know, we're not charging the, the micro battery. Um, when we apply the finger to the surface of the sample, we don't see any cracks form in that situation. So there, there are kind of two different situations. Um, so we don't actually have any idea how big the cracks are um, that are generated via this application of the external force, or we don't have any idea how big the cracks are, which are inherent to the material. Um, we can observe them, but we have to go to an even more advanced microscope than the one that we use in this um, this paper. Um, and this this phenomenon of like pre-existing cracks in the material being unobservable actually goes back a very long time in the literature. Um, the like the 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 reason why glass typically fails is also for this kind of reason that there's these tiny cracks that are super hard to to see. So there are hopefully this is more clear now that there's two kinds of cracks. One crack which is generated which are much bigger, which we can see with this microscope, um, that are generated by the lithium itself, something about the electrochemistry um, of the lithium itself. And then the, the cracks, which we think are kind of seeding that process or causing that process to initiate, those cracks are actually too small to see. So the big crack in figure B that we, what we labeled as 30 nanometers, probably at some point, would connect all the way back to some even smaller crack at the very beginning of the experiment, which the lithium metal kind of worked its way into and then propagated it to make it bigger. So hopefully that's a little bit more clear than when I explained it first. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely uh, uh, answered the, uh, my question. The, but it's, it's interesting, as you said, the uh, the, the, the crack that we are seeing right now is the aftermath. It's already, uh, if the cr criminal <laughs> exactly it, it, it's, it's already what happened so you know, what the job and what we are interested in is actually the what prior to this as uh, it, it, it will be excellent to not only see uh although it's not it's not easy to to uh, much powerful uh microscope needed but uh, uh it's actually uh more interesting is to to understand the dynamic uh, dynamical process, how these cracks might develop, right? So this has to be, so given the, the, the evidence that it's a dendrite, a dendrite kind of growth processes, there has to be, but the, 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 then the, the, uh, it begs the question, the, the way that you investigate, uh, interrogate, somehow it's very uh, concentrated, uh, you're in the way of, of applying the force disturbance right so you you, you have a concentrated uh, probe uh, versus the so so this 30 nanometer the aftermath it's actually it's uh, microscopically formed there has to be some uh, microscopic uh, force that mechanics process that is uh, maybe there's some concentration at the surface but uh, I don't know the yeah can, can you with this uh, uh, one probe that you can can you explain the distributed ways like lightning like a bifurcation of the dendrites just just curiosity and what would be the 
uh, I, I'm curious. There, probably there are already uh, efforts in kind of a take a picture of these. Uh, is the material itself, the ceramic itself, a uh, completely uh, uh, um, what do you call the free uh, no, deficit free? Uh, the, or is it actually already have uh, uh, cracks in it already? Yeah, I think there's a number of number of points there. I think I think what I can say um, uh, to that point is that w the very last point, I think the 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 obvious answer is definitely yes. So basically, all um, like ceramic materials that exist in the real world have probably some sort of cracks in them, and especially for this particular material, we we actually didn't do any, uh, we did nothing special to it. And there's a very good chance that the surface of the material is littered with some sort of, of cracks. But again, you, you can't see them because they're too small. But um, yeah, so there's a very good chance. And we actually think that, you know, even in the situation where we don't apply any strong force with the microprobe, we still observe the failure, uh, which is driven by the lithium metal growth. So it's a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a jump, but not too much. Just to think that you know the mechanism for when we apply the high contact force and see the the dendrites or the intrusions appear instantly, um, that probably is the same mechanism for when we see the dendrites appear just in generally. And so they don't have to be the same mechanism, but I think there's a good chance that they're they are. Um, and so I think there's definitely pre-existing cracks there. Um, the like you said, the the aftermath cracks we think are definitely bigger, and I think it it'll just be a kind of a challenge to figure out a way to quantify like how big those pre-existing ones are before the lithium tends to increase the size of them. Um, but that is actually a very very difficult challenge. Um, that yeah, the, trying to understand where those things are and and how to see them because they're all they're also not particularly. Um, like frequent. So if you zoom in, if you imagine zooming in, you have to like look in a very specific spot to see the very microscopic cracks. Um, and it's, it becomes a, a much bigger challenge. So that's one of the reasons why we're happy to induce the cracks with our probe rather than to just look for them. So I, hopefully that gives you a little bit of, of additional uh, con of context there. But um, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of interesting um, analysis of cracks. And I, I spent a long time to, to try to, my best to understand how we could observe these cracks. And um, this was the best thing we could come up with at the moment. So hopefully someone will do a better job of it in the future. Well, this is a, a congratulations, by the way. This is definitely moving our knowledge, you know, the frontier, one big steps further uh, ahead, uh, advance. So congratulations and thank you for that. But by the way, just a uh, uh, last for my this round of my question, the the, uh, the uh, intuition you give is very helpful that uh, the charging and discharging uh, the work mode is actually can be seen as uh, moving the uh, lithium uh, the the the, the uh, lithium atoms like uh, from left to right and right back and back right. So that's great. So one, what happens on the other side seems to, to be the other side is. Uh, uh, not contributing to the problem at all, or the, I mean, the the there has to be some crevices, the cracks for for the uh, in order for uh, the battery to function as an electrolyte that the lithium ions can go back and forth, huh? 
just I see. So you're saying that like there there has to be some way for the lithium ions to move through the solid state electrolyte um, to 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 make the battery work. Um, is that that's kind of what your question is? So like, how can it be that the the lithium that the battery works um, even without cracks? Like, if there were no cracks, then the lithium couldn't get through the the material. I think is that the question you're asking? Yeah, and also any problem arises from the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I can um, I'll answer the the last question first because I think it's a very um, it's a very good point that it's easy to misunderstand what the solid state electrolyte is doing. So the solid state electrolyte, um, if you were to zoom in like all the way down in this particular material to the atomic scale, at the atomic scale, most materials that we work with in our day-to-day -day lives um, have some sort of very particular structure. And in this material, it's um, a lot of lithium, a lot of oxygen, and a lot of zirconium and a lot of lanthanum. And they're actually arranged in a very particular way, in a, like a, a three-dimensional pattern, which we actually can characterize very precisely. And the so the, the mechanism for the lithium to move through this material is not actually through kind of extra like macroscopic pores or cracks that you could see in this kind of picture, but it's actually at the atomic scale. So at the atomic scale, there are these holes, which we call vacancies. But even if there are these micro, like atomic scale defects, the entire material behaves as if it is one continuous piece of material. So there's no like macroscopic cracks or something for lithium to transport through. It's actually only at the atomic scale where there are these tiny little uh, essentially like channels for the lithium ions to move through the material. And it's a good distinction to also think about that the lithium ions are moving through this electrolyte, but at the surface, it's lithium metal. So the lithium metal has an additional electron. And so that is a, like a completely different animal altogether than the lithium ions, which are moving through the, the electrolyte itself. So it's a very easy thing to, to get confused about. But yeah, so that's um, ideally you can have no cracks in the material, but you still have lithium ions moving through it because the, the ions move on the scale of the atoms, but the cracks and other things are operating on the scale of probably like tens of nanometers or something like this, which is about 10 times the length scale of the, of the lithium, of the um, atoms that are moving through the material. So hopefully that explains um, that a little bit more better too. And to answer the, the other part of that question, um, we don't believe the other side of the battery is having any effect. Um, even in the lithium metal batteries, if you um, were to look at slide, um, uh, if you were to look at slide number four, um, even in that case, the other side of the battery, the cathode side, is still actually made of these particles that are housing the lithium in a way that they won't cause dendrite problems. So the other side of the battery is basically not contributing. It's all, all the action is happening at that interface between the solid state electrolyte and the lithium metal, which you can see um, in our pictures. Thank you. The nightmare before film and chaos, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it, that that colorization was really cool. How did you how did you, you know choose how to colorize it? 
uh, I think we just picked some arbitrary colors. I uh, Shin actually did the, the coloration, and I, I don't know how he picked the colors, but I think, um, yeah, he just picked pick blue and red, I think, probably just to start. And it, it's just Photoshop to just go in and, and paint it all with Photoshop and different filters and stuff. So, yeah, it's a it makes for some really beautiful art, actually. There's a lot of really cool structures that we saw in this experiment. Yeah, it sort of reminded me of an aquatic environment a little bit. The little, the, the chaotic bits of lithium look a little bit like sea worms, nudibrakes. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and it's a blue background, so it definitely looks a little bit like the ocean. Mm -hmm. the, that, that filament formation, it looked pretty Fibonacci sequency. Yeah, it looks kind of like those uh, spirals from the um, like the different yeah Fibonacci spiral type of thing. There's um, we it's kind of easy to get distracted because you know there's all these really cool filaments and stuff that are growing on the surface of this, and so you're like, why is it you know why is it growing in this particular way, and why does it have this shape? But actually, you know, in our case, that that part of the um, experiment, we actually had no interest in whatsoever. All the action we're interested in is right at the interface between the kind of well, the background in these pictures, which is the ceramic material and the lithium metal and how those two interact. And so, yeah, the, these filaments coming off are really cool, but they're actually totally not um, interested. We're not interested in them at all for our, our studies. So it's kind of funny to, to look at them. Got it. Okay. The, the whole, you had mentioned a field was applied with a probe the the failures were instant essentially yeah if we if we apply like a very high loading to the probe then the failures would occur like within a, like a few seconds maybe for context if we don't apply a high load we still have to contact the surface with our probe but we just do it very very gently and so um if we don't use a high contact load we can actually plate these lithium for like tens of minutes, like probably 10 minutes or something. So like the picture that's on slide um, nine, that's probably like, I think 10 minutes worth of lithium plating. But if we apply a super high load, we see the, 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 the fracture and the dendrites occur like within a couple seconds. So it's a huge difference between the, the high load and the, and the low load. I was going to ask about the timing. Thanks for, for talking to that. How is a ceramic form? Like, I understand this is all at nanoscale. Like, the, the, the size of the complete sample is still on a nanoscale? Or? Yeah, so um, to give you a little bit more details, so um, this is a ceramic that is actually a macroscopic piece. So you, you can actually look at it. It's like a the we actually buy this ceramic from a manufacturer, and the way they make it is you, you basically mix together a bunch of what look like white powders there. Um, and those are, again, oxides of various different things. You can, like conceptually, you can kind of think of them as like being like sand or something, or they're, and they're ground up into very fine powders. And then you mix them all together and then you heat them up to super high temperatures. This is kind of like firing in like regular ceramics or something. And when you fire them or, or um, what we call calcination, the the atomic structure of all the different materials kind of mixes together and makes one single material. Um, and so once you get that material, 
you actually do it under under like a super high pressure so you actually get like a disc of material and that is all um you know it's a very complicated chemical structure and it but it's all like uniform in one chemical composition like sodium chloride has a specific um, arrangement of sodium and chlorine atoms and this ceramic has a similar kind of arrangement of of atoms on the atomic scale and that's present throughout the entire sample. Um, and then what we do is we actually take it and we, we literally break off a tiny piece of it, which is about a few millimeters in size. And then if you look at uh, slide eight, in slide eight, there is um, the picture shows like this little tan box on the left. And then there's lithium on the bottom and lithium on the top. So what we actually do is we take a, a piece of lithium metal foil and we have that on the bottom. And then we we literally take the, the, the chunk of the ceramic and we by hand just compress it into the lithium. And the lithium is kind of sticky. So it actually sticks to the, the ceramic. And then we, we have a, a electrical connection between the bottom of the lithium, um, which is in contact now with the salt electrolyte. And then we have like a wire and a complicated wiring system that will connect to this probe, which we then go on the, on the top of the of the material. So the entire sample is like actually millimeters in scale, but we zoom in to a specific place on that sam sample surface with the electron microscope uh, abilities. So then we can look at it extremely closely on the kind of micron scale or nano scale. Very interesting. The the um. And so the uniformity of the ceramic that's formed, that's been validated by the more expensive scope that you were talking about earlier? Um, not necessarily. So we don't have, like, I guess by uniformity, it depends on what kind of uniformity you mean. But um, there, when people manufacture these ceramics, there's no guarantees of the cracks like that are inherent in the material. So. Yeah, the micro. Yeah. yeah, so those are probably already inherent to the material when we get them. Um, so there's no kind of pre-testing of that. Um, people typically do care more about the chemical composition. So uh, like the manufacturers who make these things will often like, they'll take little samples of the of the ceramic material and they'll, they'll test its chemical composition to make sure like one part of the sample doesn't have too much of one element or the other. Um, so that type of, of um, kind of quality control is a little bit more common. Um, but the the actual kind of micro, what, what we would call in, in material science, we would call it the microstructure, which is the actual shape of it. And the kind of the pores, the cracks, these sorts of things, those things are typically not really very highly um, specified with the exception maybe of like density. Um, when you make these ceramics, there are like little pores and you you can actually see one of those pores in slide 11 we pointed out so there's lots of there are some pores in there and you can characterize those pretty easily but as to, as far as like micro cracks or other sort of features like that those aren't necessarily um characterized as much as as, as we can so yeah hopefully that answers your question it does i mean the reason that i'm asking about this is it just seems that perhaps there's a way to make this fail in a controlled way. I mean, it seems like it would be very difficult to, to preform channels into this sort of material just based on what you were describing the manufacturing process. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of different ideas for ways to prevent this problem. Um, yeah, there, there's a whole bunch. Um, but it, the, the trick is that it needs to be um, needs to be very scalable needs to be easy to do. And like I was saying it, it um, the, 
if you're going to do anything in batteries, it has to be produced on just like an enormously large scale. Um, so you have to be very, um, very smart about the way that you choose to like make materials or process them and do all these different things. So yeah, it's, um, it's surprisingly simple the way like, like regular lithium ion batteries are made. It's like, it's almost like painting. They're just like plop down a bunch of electrode onto a literally aluminum foil and then just like stick the pieces together and put them in a, in a can. So it's, it's, a uh, it's surprisingly simple, the, the manufacturing process for traditional lithium ion batteries, which is one of the reasons why they're actually relatively cheap. Um, and so they're, and they will continue to get cheaper in the future. So if you want to compete with that, you have to make sure your processing is also like very scalable and also very, uh, relatively inexpensive too. So un many practical purposes for, uh, like development of battery technologies. Yeah, for sure. I was thinking about, this might be a very far-fetched, but um, to induce the flow, what about exposing it to a plasma field just for experimental purposes? I don't really understand how this would work at a practical scale in a device, but... Um, do you mean um, like plasma in terms of like the, 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 like surrounding the ceramic would be like in kind of immersed in plasma? Rather, yeah, okay. rather than using a tungsten probe to apply the, the current. Oh, I, I uh, see. I, I see what you mean. So you'd actually use the... Um, use the ions from the plasma to electrically induce, induce the, the, the electrodeposition of lithium. Uh, yes, so people actually do something quite similar to that. So uh, plasmas are made up of, of many kinds of charged particles, right? There's both positively charged ones and negatively charged ones. Um, and in our specific case, when we're doing this particular reaction, we're actually uh, sending electrons through the probe and sending those electrons to the surface of the sample where they combine with the lithium ion and they form the lithium metal. Um, so actually, interestingly enough, we are working in, in a electron microscope. So there are actually a number of papers, and we observe this a little bit as a side note ourselves, where if you, if you leave the if you essentially image a particular place on the sample in this configuration and you hook up the wiring correctly in the microscope, the electrons that are actually making the image that you see could actually also be used to deposit the lithium metal. So there are also a few papers that do this and they, it's pretty fun to look at. Um, the problem with this though, is that you are you can deposit lithium doing that way and it, it's actually really cool like the fact that that works is just like mind-blowing to me and it's super amazing um yeah, you have my inner science nerd yeah exactly it's it's super cool <laughs> um but the problem with that is that if you if you leave that going too long the the ceramic material itself actually starts to become unstable and so then that the material will just like everything will just completely change like you'll see the contrast or the the yeah the like grayscale contrast will change of the material it'll like start to also produce like cracking or different weird shapes so um from a from a, even from a research point of view using like the external like ions or external electrons from the electron gun essentially is really hard to understand anything because you're actually it's actually a very energetic thing that you you're really causing a lot of damage if you're throwing too many electrons at it so we were pretty careful in this experiment not to induce 
too much damage from the electron beam. So we just, we didn't, we try to take not that many pictures and stuff like this. So um, that was one of the considerations we had to do during the experiment. But yeah, it's a super cool method, but for this particular thing, it, it was not particularly useful for what we wanted to study. Wow. <laughs> Very cool. Um, I want to leave some time for other questions. So Katerina, back to you. And thank you so much for your answers. That was fun. Yeah, I wanted to take with you first um, because we've been going over an hour and you might have other things to do. So I want to give you an opportunity to, um, yeah, to get ready. I'm, I'm happy to, to stick around and, and chat if people are, are interested. Um, no, no worries. It's later. It's late for you for you folks um if you're on the east coast um but uh i guess if you're somewhere else in the world maybe it's not a problem but i i i'm i guarantee you that that you all will get much will get bored of talking about this stuff way faster than i will so i'm i'm more than happy to to stick around and, and chat more if, if anybody wants to yeah sure let's yeah if you're still fine then maybe until 30 we can we can chat some more so i thought this was really an interesting question of dennis um the the latter question i was constantly thinking like how will you fix either the lithium to leak into those cracks and make them worse or um is would there be a way to make it kind of more viscous somehow uh, to prevent it totally from leaking into those cracks or is that not a way yeah that's not a bad thought i think the um actually the the opposite direction is actually kind of more what you want to go in because if you imagine um i guess in this particular slide deck if you look at like slide five if you imagine that there's like this this pre-existing crack the picture in the like on the upper um in the upper right picture if you have like lithium that's that's kind of filled up one of these pre-existing cracks and then if you basically what the electrochemistry is doing is it's trying to force more lithium into that spot where there's already lithium occupying so actually in this picture they actually depict like the flow of lithium out of that crack and so um like there is kind of one mode of thinking that if you reduce the viscosity of the lithium, it will flow easier out of these pre-existing cracks, and then it will not build up as much pressure inside of the crack, which eventually is what the thing that will cause it to break. So it's not the worst thought. And actually one way that you can imagine doing this is actually by increasing the temperature. And so there actually are many reports of that the the, the kind of probability or the the likelihood that you will get dendrites and short circuiting actually goes down quite a bit when you have uh, higher temperatures. I think though the problem with this is that when you change the temperature, like everything in the system starts to change. So I personally actually don't know if this viscosity driven kind of flow of lithium is really the uh, like a, a big driver. I think there are probably other uh, mechanisms which are a little bit more dominant than the flow itself of lithium. Because um, even if you heat it up, you also have to think about the length scale of these things are super, super tiny. Like I was saying, it's like unbelievably small. And so even if the lithium is very viscous, if you imagine like trying to force molasses through like a tiny hole or force like Play-Doh through a really tiny hole, the smaller the hole gets, the harder it is to push the, the fluid through it. So if you have a hole or in this case, like a crack, 
that's like only a few like uh, nanometers big, it seems very unlikely that even if you increase the viscosity, that it's going to be enough to allow the lithium to flow out of that crack. Um, I think there's probably other reasons why the increased temperature allows you to have um, less likelihood of, of dendrites or intrusions. So I think um, it's a good thought. I'm not sure if it, if it's the right way of going or not, but it is certainly one of the many ideas that has been proposed in the literature so far for like how to fix this problem. Would there be a way of sealing it without, you know, having the the iron flow uh, compromised? Is there, are there candidates? Yeah, absolutely. So you can imagine that, like, over the top of this material, you you apply like a second solid state electrolyte, which maybe um, maybe for some reason the second solid state electrolyte is like much less susceptible to pre-existing flaws or something like this. Um, that certainly could be an option, so that. You know, you're essentially preventing the lithium from going into the cracks in the first place. Um, and I think that certainly is a very reasonable way of doing it. Um, like I was saying before, uh, traditional lithium ion batteries kind of get around this problem by having a host structure. And the host stru structure kind of guides the lithium atoms or ions into the proper place where they should be so that they don't kind of get out of control and, and make these these big filaments and plating and short circuiting problems. So that's um, definitely in the vein of also many things that people have discussed in the literature before. So there's always complications for all these things. But yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a, a valid idea that people have been thinking about. Yeah, that's really interesting. Are those materials even harder to get? Like, um, you know, those those guiding materials, basically, or is it something that is just, you know, available like the same amount as lithium? Or yeah, so like in traditional lithium-ion batteries, that material is graphite, which is the the pencil material. So it's super abundant. Uh, well, maybe not super abundant, but um, it is it is. It is definitely available. There's no big restriction on that. Um, so lots of people have done like hybrid approaches where they put some of those like graphite materials like on the surface of uh, solid state electrolytes, and they see like better performance and and these different things. So um, yeah, so those materials are also not particularly uh, scarce or anything like that. So um, yeah, I think that's also uh, very reasonable. Oh, yeah, that's um, interesting. Um, it will be really, I mean, there will be probably in the future, not just one solution, but maybe a lot of different ones, approaches to, to solve this in different type of settings. So it will be interesting to observe what, what people come up with. And so, so the, the, the amount of time you try to fully charge the battery also, um, you know, if you want to fast charge the batteries, it's probably like more problematic than um, than if you want to you if you would charge very slowly, or is that not the case? 
Yeah, that's definitely the case. Um, I didn't talk about it here, but many other reports in the in this particular field of study, they use this metric, which they call the critical current density, which is a fancy way of saying like, how fast can you charge the battery before it fails? And so definitely, um, if you go very slowly, there's a less likelihood of getting these dendrites. And the faster you go, the more likely that they are to occur. Um, and so there's like, it's hard for it's a little bit hard for me to explain, and it's it's actually took me like many years to kind of wrap my head around like what is going on with the um, with the what we call electrochemistry happening in this particular thing, but um, there's definitely a relationship between how fast you go and how likely you are to get dendrites or intrusions as we're calling them. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a uh, uh, possibility. But I will say that at least in the current like academic world um the if if you look at like a, a a more macroscopic battery like the one that's on slide five which is like middle millimeter scale um the the rate at which you're charging the battery in that particular case is actually slower than the rate that you would be going in a typical lithium-ion battery so it's um it's a, it's actually kind of one of these challenges where you know in in principle you probably can go very fast and I think we've shown that actually in our our work that you should be able to go very fast with these solid state electrolyte materials but in practice because of this dendrite problem it, it's actually hard to know like what is the practical fast charging limit because it depends on like exactly how good you make the material and stuff like this so hopefully that answers that question. Yeah, thank you. I'm thinking of my car. I'm constantly fast charging it. <laughs> yeah, so the um, traditional lithium-ion batteries have gotten pretty good at fast charging already. So um, it, it, it's actually a very um, stiff competition from the traditional technology uh, compared to this kind of hypothetically new and better technology. So um, there are actually very um, hot opinions in the lithium-ion battery industry whether or not the kind of solid state electrolyte idea will ever actually take off because the traditional technology keeps getting better every single year and become harder and harder to compete against basically and so solid state batteries are having a hard time i think finding their niche and convincing people that this new technology is actually going to be better than the previous and um, traditional ones. So it's a, it's a very interesting time in the battery space, definitely right now, because there's a lot of players and they all have very strong opinions about which technology is going to be the one that is the, the dominant one in the future. So that's interesting. Do you think for airplanes or something like that, we will ever use uh, lithium batteries or will you know, will they be way too heavy and you know, to like make any sense to to go electric for flying? Yeah, it's hard to know. Um, if you mean like lithium metal batteries, um, I think there are actually quite a number of companies that are interested specifically in aerospace um, applications for the reasons that the lithium metal batteries, in principle, should be lighter for the same amount of energy compared to the traditional lithium-ion batteries. And that's basically just because of that, that graphite that I was talking about, that you can get rid of all of that. Um, and so there is a possibility that it could be used for airplanes. Um, I can tell you, though, having looked into this in grad school myself, that um, even, in the, even if you take the most 
very most optimistic uh, type of battery, which is like a lithium oxygen battery. And you are very aggressive about the assumptions about how good it could possibly be. Um, it is extremely, extremely unlikely that you'll ever see like an electric plane that that's running purely on battery power that could fly from like LA to uh, like Tokyo or something. And so the the application for electric planes would almost certainly be in like much shorter flights. And so you're seeing a lot of companies that are trying to do like what they call air taxis, like vertical takeoff and landing air taxis that like go within a city. And then um, you also probably are seeing more applications for like uh, electric planes that do like short haul flights, like one hour flights or something like this. I think United actually has come out and said they're interested in in partnering with uh, like a company doing like a hybrid plane that's like partial battery, partial jet engine um, in order to get like a short haul long uh, flight that's m like much more efficient than previous. So I think um, in my opinion, actually, like going zooming way out away from this research, but um, from a practical opinion, actually, a lot of the times when you pair batteries with like existing combustion engines, even a small battery can give you like enormous amount of gains in the efficiency of of like fuel use. So I think in a lot of situations, a lot of applications, you'll you'll actually see a lot of hybrids rather than like full electrification. So I think planes is definitely a, a place where I would see a hybrid approach. Um, it may be actually more feasible than like a one hundred percent electric plane. Okay, I will go into the plane if you sign off fly. Okay, Mark, you joined the stage. Hi, uh, welcome. Do you have a question? Um, Mark, uh, so to unmute is all the way on the bottom right. I'm not sure if you may be new to call. Okay, sorry yeah. about that. I have, I have a statement rather than a question, and I'm in the business. Um, so uh, I'm Mark Roost with Sustainable Energy, Inc., and we are a ceramic, a fired ceramic semiconductor materials science company startup, and we're building on work that included um, creation of a fast semiconductor or discovery of a fast semiconductor faster than gallium arsenide back in 1983. Um, that was for solar, but a lot of the solar material science is being applied to the non-lithium battery material science that we've been working on for 12 years now, 10 years. Actually, the inventor has been noodling on it for about 25 years. So what we're looking at, the, the, your, Jeff is right in one sense, but not in another. So there is a hybrid battery and solar electric, which is possible. And the solar, you're absolutely right. You're not going to fly to Tokyo on battery alone, um, even at five kilowatt hours per kilogram. But you are going to be able to do it if you're taking your time so you're not using so much energy per mile and if you are cover if you cover the airplane with a solar thin film that should work at 42 percent efficiency at sea level but above 10,000 feet should escalate to 57 percent efficiency conversion efficiency 
And, and uh, it's taking both the direct sunlight from above and reflected light from the sea or the clouds below it. And that is able to charge the battery while powering the plane. And then at night, um, you're running off the battery. And then when the sun comes up again, you know, you're now again charging the battery and powering the plane. So uh, the, by doing an ultralight aircraft, you know, basically designing the aircraft more like a hydrofoil yacht than a typical airplane, and by um, uh, using you know, really large wing surfaces, you know, by, you know, designing the aircraft to have the most surface available that you can and still be aerodynamically efficient. Um, we're looking at being able to go around the world nonstop. Yeah. And on heavy, with a heavy load, with a heavy payload or a full payload of passengers and or cargo, being able to go five or 10,000 miles nonstop easily. Yeah, so the, what I was specking was basically the, um, the current state of the like, commercial jetliner industry. So if, if you right. don't have any changes to that mode, uh, you know, via speeds or passengers or, you know, size of plane, any of this stuff, um, then it, I think it'd be very, very hard. But yeah, if you, if you have some like enormous improvement in efficiency of airplanes, then, you know, then, you know, all, all, all bets well, are off. We have that too. <laughs> so by, yeah. So by using a series of ducted turbines, uh, gearless ducted turbines, which are based on other technology that the inventor also invented and patented. Um, by using that, you get more efficiency out of the propulsion system by designing it, uh, by borrowing other design ideas and integrating them, uh, you get lightweight and high lift. And by, um, let's just double back about four years ago, when I went to the NASA, um, at, at this was at the Moffett Field in the NASA Ames Research Center. They had a workshop uh, to prepare people for doing SBIRs for uh, VTOL, for vertical takeoff and landing stuff. And in a breakout session, I asked the head of, of uh, SBIR for the aeronautics division of NASA, uh, who was running, you know, who was basically rambling uh, about hybrids, what would it take to do battery electric, just battery electric? And he said the tipping point to go from hybrid battery aircraft to full commercial passenger aircraft, full battery electric commercial passenger aircraft is 700 watt hours per kilogram, but it'll be a long time before we get there because we're at 180 now. So now we're at three, 300 heading for 350 and 500 with the latest battery developments. And someone's claiming we're headed for 900, you know, somebody else other than us, but we're, we're actually expecting to get way past that because we're doing a ceramic semiconductor multi-crystalline approach, um, which with a very, very efficient way of, of fabricating them. So, yeah, we're looking at at starting production at around two kilowatt hours per kilogram, and with a theoretical that's past five. 
and then on the solar, we're looking at the 42 and the, and the 57% efficiency. So with that level of, you know, right now, the best commercial solar is 23%, and the best uh, space solar is like 29 or 30 or so. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's really interesting, Mark, um, to learn that uh, about your work. Um, looking for... <laughs> we are a two or three person started. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, well, I hope you get a lot of funding and, um, yeah, and you scale up and uh, soon. <laughs> we all need it. Um, right, thank you. <laughs> and I think, Frank, did you unmute really shortly? I don't yeah. know. I thought I saw you. Hey, I have a, a, a few questions if uh, there's time. Shoot, go for it. Cool. So the uh, uh, I, I remember the earlier discussion um, was on the uh, the conventional versus the the uh, all solid state. Uh, you mentioned that it's, it's still up in you know uh, uh, still unknown. You know which one is uh, uh, right now the. So you mentioned there's some mechanism built in already to, there's some structure. Is it, I remember seeing those uh, uh, cartoon-like figures, they have like layered, is it the, the keywords, incalation or something like? So, so, so you have that uh, uh, also, uh, so by the way, I just wanted to, uh, why, why ceramic, like electrolyte has to be, uh, and also for the dendrite, lithium dendrite problem, seems not only with uh, uh, the solid state, right? So for, for the, it's also, there's a, uh, for the traditional ones, you have a separator and the, the dendrite will poke uh, the, the, the separator through and also shortcutting. It's the similar, seems the, uh, the growth mechanism of this uh, uh, whatever, is it of these uh, on the annual size these the uh, problem you know uh, which one is first I guess I'm kind of <laughs> making a few questions together the uh, the force or versus the 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 the, uh, the electrochemical kind of a build up process to begin with and uh, yeah so I guess uh, if you can <laughs> dissect uh, my uh, not very clear questions. yeah those are great questions um, the the first part uh, you're talking about the the layered structure and um, you're you're right on the uh, the term is called intercalation so I, I try not to use technical terms when I'm talking to people uh, generally so the but the, the the word intercalation refers to the process of the lithium going inside of this host structure. So like um, like you're mentioning, so in the traditional lithium ion battery, the graphite on the anode side is made of, of layers of carbon. So each layer of carbon within the layer is is basically bound very strongly to each other. But each uh, the 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 kind of bonding force between the layers is actually very weak. And so essentially what happens is that as you charge the battery in a traditional lithium ion battery, the lithium wants to go inside of that layered structure and essentially like push apart the layers and the lithium goes inside. And there are very specific places where the lithium likes to sit. And so eventually it will sit there. Um, and so that's the intercalation process. So the difference um, for the solid state 
lithium metal battery is that it doesn't involve intercalation at all. So on a kind of a picture level, what you can think about it is that like at the interface of the solid state electrolytes and the and um, there's what we would call the current collector or whatever the electronic contact is, then you essentially grow pure lithium metal right at that interface. And it, when you added a layer of lithium metal, it kind of pushes the other uh, lithium away. And so that's why we get these whiskers in this particular study that I was showing. It's kind of growing the lithium from the, from the, like from the uh, interface of that material. So that is kind of um, the difference between the salt state battery, or the, I should say the lithium metal batteries, because you can have lithium metal batteries that are not salt state either. Um, but that's the difference between the lithium metal battery and the kind of traditional uh, graphite intercalation batteries. Um, the other question you mentioned about um, does the solid state electrolyte have to be a ceramic? And that's a great question. Um, and the answer is no. The, there are other kinds of materials which will also work as a solid state electrolyte. The, um, the, 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 basically, the, the other one that's not ceramic is a polymer. So I, get, I think, Frank, I, didn't, I think you mentioned at the beginning of this, you're actually in the uh, plastics industry. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, the, so uh, uh, commodity. Yeah. So, like, um, so polymers are are basically plastics. So, there's like a huge discipline, uh, closely related related to organic chemistry, which is uh, about polymer chemistry. And so, plastics chemistry of huge discipline. Lots of different things going on there. So, essentially, what you can do is you can also make a solid state electrolyte by essentially taking a plastic. That is, it, it's most of the time they're a little bit more um, softer plastics, softer polymers, and essentially you you kind of mix in a salt. So it's kind of like a, a hybrid between the fully liquid one and the um, and the ceramic one, and the polymer kind of it holds the salt and it still dissociates the ions in that salt, but the lithium ions are able to still move a lot faster than the uh, the counter ion uh, that gets dissolved into that polymer. So you can also have a polymer solid state battery, but the issue with the polymer solid state batteries is that they tend to not be as chemically stable. So lithium metal, I don't know if you remember from chemistry class, but lithium metal is an alkali metal, and that metal is extremely reactive. Um, so it will react with like almost anything on the periodic table in some ways. Um, and so polymers tend to be slightly less stable than the oxides or, or, or other classes of materials that salt electrolytes are sometimes made out of. Um, and so the, the main, that's the main reason why you, you would want to use this particular ceramic. And I should say that most ceramics are not stable chemically to lithium metal. And this particular composition was actually picked um, for both its high conductivity, but also its um, its chemical stability. So that that's probably the main reason why you want to use the ceramic is because it's very stable. Um, I think the final question, uh, can you remind me the final question you were uh, asking about? I think you had like three of them in there. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, you, you already you know, give a very, uh, you know, many answers to uh, what I was uh, going for, but uh, just to, to uh, carry on the, uh, yeah, so the, uh, if I remember what, what I, uh, uh, I don't actually quite, uh, but uh, for the, uh, uh, 
yeah, so you so so you motivated why you know the ceramic uh, naturalized, and uh, so for the uh, uh, so you you mentioned the conventional, and right now what what is the uh, prediction of of the market? You know the share you you mentioned that in twenty thirty, you have a slide saying that the cap the market cap uh, will be, uh, and uh, that's. Uh, oh, oh, so I guess I remember the question: the 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 mechanism of the force is it a uh, is it a cause or is it more of the effects? According to, I mean, no, you you basically already uh, subscribed to it. it's a, it's a cause, right? To begin with. Is that the question? I think um, I think if I remember now, I'm remembering now, and I think you were talking about in traditional lithium-ion batteries that this dendrite problem still exists. I think that's what you were asking that's right, about. Right, right. Yeah, it, so it's it, actually poked through the. Uh, Polymer. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. So the um, so I guess I should say in both the solid state case and the traditional lithium ion battery case, and the, I should say the, the liquid electrolyte case, um, both of the dendrite growth is driven by the electrochemistry. So as you electrochemically deposit the lithium, again, think electroplating if you if you have any familiarity with that, as you deposit the metal onto the um, electrode there is always going to be actually a tendency to make these filaments um, it especially in the in the liquid case as well so because you're 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 depositing more material and that material has to go somewhere so in both cases the like the dendrites themselves are driven by the electrochemistry um, but the reason why the solid state research is interesting is because um, the ceramics if you think about it the ceramics are very hard. They're very, you can't deform them. Whereas if you're in a liquid case, when you deposit the lithium on the, on the electrode, the lithium can, de get de can grow freely, basically. There's like no restrictions to it. So in the traditional lithium ion battery case with a liquid electrolyte, though, if you do start to grow dendrites, they can just freely go anywhere because there's no mechanical resistance to their their flow. Um, but if you have the solid state, the, the original theory was that because the solid state material is very rigid, that it will basically just block that lithium from growing anywhere except the, the direction you want it to grow. So um, this like research is basically trying to unravel the mystery of like, why is it that the super hard material like doesn't um, prevent the propagation of these very soft lithium metal filaments through the material. So in both cases, again, the, the dendrites are driven by electrochemistry and the, the deposition of the metal. But in the solid state case, the only reason that this lithium can penetrate the, the, the ceramic at all is because of these pre-existing fractures which are driven by mechanics. So the mechanics is, is also is kind of important in both cases, but um, a liquid is so soft that it's kind of hard to think about the liquid providing any resistance to the growth of a, of a material through it. Um, but in a solid state, there, there is this resistance through um, because the material is so hard. So hopefully, hopefully that gives a little bit more clarity for like the, the difference between these two uh, situations. Yep, that's uh, quite a, a, a lot of 
actually to 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 absorb. Yeah. But, uh, I'll I'll, I'll help <laughs> help with the Google later on. But uh, with my interest. But uh, since you're here, I mean, could you give some uh, 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 sort of a kind of a look ahead, and particularly in the, I guess you're interested in a particular uh, setup uh, of this uh, uh, range of. Uh, uh, Ceramic uh, uh, electrolyte. What what would be the uh, kind of a makeup? Uh, given that, uh, uh, I think that there is there's uh, the, the you know conventional liquid versus the you know, solid state. And solid state will, will, will you know, even uh, divide into uh, different types of. Uh, what what so how large a uh, fraction? I guess the, the my question is uh, is is this particular type of. Uh, 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 electrolytes. Uh, 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 I see. Wise. So, so you're essentially kind of thinking like, what's the market share of, of solid state batteries? Like, what's going to be the market share in, in like and also years or something? This particular one. That, that uh, this particular one. Investing. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. I know of uh, I know of two companies that are working on this particular material called LZO. Um, one of them is here in California. One is on the East Coast. Um, and so I I can't give a particularly good answer to this question because um at the it, at this moment as far as i know there aren't any like large scale deployments of solid state battery um uh technology there are people that are trying very hard to do it but like for example i don't know of any like concept electric vehicle that is actually run like on solid state batteries so it's very hard for me to actually say like which material is going to be the one that people actually use? Um, the slide I showed on and, and slide four, it, the the like prediction that solid state battery market will grow is is I, I should have uh, specified that that's pure speculation. There is no um, like you know these are it's very easy to speculate about what the future technologies will be. It's very hard to know exactly what what they will be. So I really can't say exactly what the the material of choice will be if there are a wide deployment of solid state batteries. Um, there are like there are definitely a number of other other battery chemistries out there. Like I mentioned, polymers are one, um, sulfides are another. But um, it's it's really not clear which one will be the the dominant choice right now. So the the actually the 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 most probable answer is that actually none of them will because the the incumbent technology is is already so huge that it's very hard to like uh, overcome that that uh, that like barrier to entry but um, it, it it's really hard for me to actually to predict which one would be the the, the most uh, common one so I'm sorry I can't I can't really give you a, a very good answer to that question but hopefully that gives at least a little bit of context of like how um, how I would think about it that's a that's a very good it's fair yeah <laughs> it's hard, always hard to predict but uh hey, hey thanks you know uh, i added you um as a friend so in the future if uh i ran into you know questions on uh, battery I'll, I'll refer to you <laughs> as, a, as as my expertise experts in this field yeah, yeah no problem yeah i know we are going way over the time but justin just um you know, raised his hand. I'm not sure if you have time. It's totally fine to say no, and we stop right here and we let you go because you, you know, were very patient and very nice to answer all of our questions. Yeah, no worries. I, I like I like talking about it. So yeah, why don't why don't we have a? I'm so sorry, my like AirPods are were cutting out. But sorry, guys. 
uh, no worries. I'm, I'm happy to answer one more question, actually, if, if, if someone wants to throw it out there. Um, yeah, so um, I'm, a, I'm a manufacturer of heated clothing. So like jackets, vests, socks that run on lithium ion and lithium polymer batteries. So like talking about battery technology, like is... Should should we change from ion to polymer as far as like batteries are concerned? Like where should, where should we be buying our batteries? Is probably the the best question. I'm Justin. What's up? So I can't give a particularly good answer to that because um, your application will certainly call for you know particular different specifications for what kind of batteries you need to get. Um, I can say I believe if I I remember correctly that lithium polymer batteries are almost identical to lithium ion batteries. Like the the chemistry and the the active materials are the same in both of those two two batteries. I believe that the the biggest difference is like the lithium polymer battery has like because polymer you know refers to like plasticky type of stuff um, that the lithium polymer battery has like a plastic case rather than like a metal case it's either that or like the the separator was was designed with some particular polymer which is which is typically the case but maybe it's a special one or something so the the difference between lithium polymer and lithium ion is as far as i understand it uh unless someone uh can correct me um they're basically identical batteries um, with just some very small differences. So if you're looking between those two, I think you would have to dive into the very specific details. But I certainly cannot give you a, like an actual recommendation for which particular like battery you would need because your your application will will dictate what kind of um, yeah. yeah. So, no, I, I I appreciate. I think that's the best answer I I could have yeah. received, and, and I agree completely. We should like figure out where our batteries and the supplies for those batteries are coming mm -hmm. from. So, um, I'm just saying we all need energy. We all need power. Yep. <laughs> we, all, we all need batteries. Yep. That's why I like working on this field because I, I I know that there are so many applications to them, and and if we can make them better, I think the. Uh, the whole world will really benefit. I mean, from from climate benefits to other energy benefits, and also just portable electronics and other technological advancements. So, I think um, that's why it's a very exciting time to be in in the battery business and the battery research space. So, um, it's it's really thrilling to to be involved after you know however many years of of studying them. Cool, man. Just uh, keep me in the loop. Let's definitely stay in touch. Like, uh, let's make the batteries better. <laughs> Well, thank you for that question. I was also thinking for a home storage, you know, like large scale energy storage, like homes, maybe even cities, you know, if we switch to renewables, um, do you, I know it's not, you know, necessarily your research right now, but um, do you have like a prediction what we will or what we should use uh, to store larger amounts of energy uh, when we switch to renewables? That's that's also a great question. Um, funny enough, when I actually first came to grad school, I actually did work on um, a project that was designed for grid scale energy storage, um, and I thought that I actually personally did not find the 
technology portion of it that compelling. Um, so basically, the grid scale energy storage problem, from an economics point of view, is like the most commoditized thing you can imagine. It's like it's just energy. Like you only care about the cost of the grid scale energy storage system. So um, like a, like a lot of things in energy, but specifically for for grid scale, which was what you're referring to, um, the cost of it is like the absolute most important thing, like by a long shot. And it turns out that the, the best way to make something cost cheaper uh, is to do more of it, like to build more factories, make it larger scale. So you get economies of scale and stuff like this. Um, so. It's actually another one of these hotly debated things about what particular battery chemistry would be the best to use on the electrical grid. But lithium ion batteries have actually gotten cheaper way faster than people thought they would. So actually most of the um, batteries that have been connected to the grid in the last two years have almost entirely been lithium ion. Um, there are a number of startups that are looking to try to commercialize different battery chemistries than, lithi than lithium ion battery chemistries. Um, but like I was saying before, uh, it's very hard to predict like which particular technologies will be um, the the kind of quote unquote winners or the the large scale ones. But um, there are there's another technology that's probably closer to being deployed, which is called a flow battery, um, which uses like very cheap um, chemicals in it, and those are a little bit closer to deployment. Um, there's a number of other different kinds of chemistries that are, are also kind of in very small scale. But um, if you put a battery in your house right now, for example, the only, basically the only option is like lithium ion batteries um, to, in, in like a, from a practical point of view, um, maybe lead acid, but that's, um, that's a whole nother, a whole nother topic maybe. But um, so yeah, it's, it's still an open question about what battery chemistries will be the most commonly used on the grid. But I can tell you in the last few years, Lithium ion batteries have also come to dominate in the grid scale energy storage picture. So um, it's not super clear what will happen. But again, like if if historical trends are kind of true, lithium ion battery may also be the the main source of grid scale energy storage. Um, and there's a lot of other factors that go into grid scale um, factors. And I, I'm not I'm not an expert on those, but um, yeah, it's it's quite fascinating to watch that actually in the last five years during my, my PhD as many, many battery uh, grid scale energy storage startups uh, went out of business because lithium ion batteries just kept getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So um, there, people are still trying it, but um, it's, it's, it's definitely hard to compete at this moment. That's interesting. And how well can we recycle them? Like, I'm just thinking about, you know, the future, having all that trash, battery trash everywhere. They're very highly recyclable. So there's a there's a, a company that made a lot of press recently called Redwood Materials, uh, founded by a, one of the founders uh, or one of the early engineers of, of Tesla. And they are finding that they can recycle uh, the materials and the batteries at very high um, percentages. So they're, it's a very, it'll be a very interesting um, kind of economy that most likely in the future as most electric car as most cars become electric the batteries will almost certainly become like highly highly recyclable and so then we'll kind of have a circular economy where most of the materials get recycled from the battery and then manufactured into new ones and then just hopefully do that in a loop um, and then you don't have to actually mine any more materials once you get all of the initial materials extracted from the ground that sounds really great. Um, 
that sounds actually wonderful. <laughs> so, um, yeah, again, thank you so much for sharing your really interesting, important work with us. Uh, that I kind of feel like gives us more hope for the future. At least I feel that way after speaking to you. Because all you hear in the news is, oh my God, we don't have enough batteries in the yeah, I'm very, I'm very confident. I think the, um, I think the, the, the future, especially of the electric vehicle market, is very good. And I think um, if we set our minds to it, I think we can definitely um, achieve, like, get over any of the kind of concerns that most people have. But um, I think with that, I think I'll, I'll probably uh, sign off for tonight. But it's been, uh, thanks for so much for having me, and I'm very um, uh, happy for the invitation. Yeah, thank you, and. Um... Yeah, we wish you all the best for the future, for your current work. Maybe one day we are allowed to learn a little bit about it. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was really a pleasure having you here. It was really uh, nice talking to you. And thank you again so much for answering all of our questions. That was really wonderful. So thank Yeah, no you. problem. Uh, all right, take care. <laughs> thank thanks, you. Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. And thank you everyone for coming and participating. It's so much more interesting if we have more people participating in the discussions. Um, and if we have a room again tomorrow, actually uh, probably too early for people on the West Coast, it's at 9 a.m. EST. And it's a neuroscience room about memory and how um, the different uh, brain regions work together to form sp um, different memories. Um, it will be really interesting um, neuroscience work being presented here. And then we have again a talk on Friday um, that will be with Dr. Dao and um, she will um, show us how she uh, this she and the colleagues discovered um, rivers under the Antarctic ice sheets and how they are influencing the melting of uh, Antarctic um, ice. So um, yeah, I hope I hear you all back again. Thank you so much for coming and I'll close the room now. And three, two, one. Bye everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Nice.